welcome to Detroit Today here on the first official day of summer after the Memorial Day weekend. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Gilbert Lee Poole Jr. spent almost 32 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. The last time he was free, George H.W. Bush was in his first year as president, and the Soviet Union wouldn't be dissolved for another two years. Soon, though, he is going to be released from prison. It's one of the most recent overturned convictions here in Michigan for a wrongfully imprisoned Michigander. But this case is especially notable because it's the first exoneration that's part of Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel's Conviction Integrity Unit. This is a unit that is going back over cases that the Attorney General's office has handled and other prosecutors and looking to see if there's evidence that was overlooked, looking to see if there were errors that were made. Here to talk about that office, its work, and what happened to Gilbert Lee Poole Jr. is Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. General Nessel, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me today to talk about this issue. Yeah. So let's start with Mr. Poole. Tell me about his case and what led to it being reexamined. Well, you know, he was convicted uh, in 1989 of a 1988 murder in um, uh, Oakland County. It took place uh, in Pontiac. And, uh, you know, the information that was presented at trial and that they had at the time. It was based on uh, bite mark evidence, essentially, in, in, in large part, which has been widely debunked since that time. And there was DNA left at the scene of a pretty grisly stabbing murder. Uh, and at the time, they did not have the DNA testing forensic um, laboratory uh, ability that they have now. And so when this case was reevaluated years later, uh, he was excluded. He was specifically excluded from uh, the DNA that had been left at the scene, which clearly showed that in addition to the, the victim's blood, uh, there, were, uh, there was lots of DNA from an, uh, another individual, but that individual was not Gilbert Poole. So the evidence that was presented at trial, um, you know, was, largely inaccurate evidence, uh, was inaccurate evidence. And we know from DNA that he could not possibly have been the person who committed the murder. Hmm. And so last week he was uh, exonerated. We had a motion before um, Oakland County Circuit Judge uh, Ray Lee Chabot, and uh, we presented our motion um, to set aside the conviction. The motion was joined by uh, Karen McDonald, the Oakland County prosecutor, and he was freed. One of the things that's really scary about this case is this is not just a, a a case of you know an eyewitness saying something that was was unreliable uh, or circumstantial evidence that that winds up convicting somebody. I mean, there was actual uh, forensic evidence here that that turned out not to be reliable, and I think it really points to the desperate need to have things like this conviction integrity unit to go back and and really look at at some of these cases. I mean, this is not the way that I think most people imagine that wrongful convictions happen. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not 
I'm not 100 years old, but I've been practicing <laughs> criminal law for quite some time. And I will tell you that a couple types of evidence on cases that we're looking at right now were routinely used in the time that I was a prosecutor. So bite mark evidence, I didn't question it. We used it all the time mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a litany of different types of cases. And since that time, we know uh, that evidence that it seemed right, you know, when we were presenting it, you'd take the, the evidence that was found on the victim, you'd take uh, the dental records of the defendant, you'd overlap them, and you had an expert who said, yep, there's, you know, one in a million chance this could be anybody but this guy. And you'd be like, well, that seems right to me. I'm a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist. We used it all the time, and we now know that that type of evidence utilized in this case was not accurate. Same thing with arson evidence. I can't tell you how many cases I had that we presented a certain type of evidence to say, we know that this fire was intentionally set, uh, and somebody would be convicted of murder. And we'd find out later that that type of arson evidence was not reliable, and it well could have been an electrical failure in the household, um, and somebody is sitting in prison for killing their entire family when really it was just a horrible accident. Um, so we're not talking about the types of forensic evidence that was presented 100 years ago or 200 years ago. I mean, this is stuff that has happened over the course of actually a short period of time, and, and that's why, as you suggested, it is so incredibly important that we have these types of units you know, Kim Worthy was the per- first in our state to enact one of these in her office. Mm-hmm. Um, and in just in the short period of time that she's had it, I think I want to say it's only been around for about three years in her office. But I think she's exonerated over a couple dozen people. And I felt as though it was so critical that we have one of these statewide, because as you know, I have statewide jurisdiction with the Department of Attorney General. And that means we can go into any county anywhere in the state. And when we find that a wrongfully convicted person is serving, you know, decades or their life behind bars, we have the ability to do something about it. Yeah. Um, Give us a sense of how the process of identifying those cases works. As you say, you could go anywhere in the state to, to, to review these cases, what's what's the way that that you choose cases like uh, like Mr. Pools? Well, we you know allow anybody to apply, and in fact, I think most um, mostly this has been disseminated throughout the Michigan Department of Corrections. Uh, but you know, we have protocols, we have an application process. To date, we have over a, a thousand formal applications that have been sent to us, and we have. Uh, over 100 cases that we're working on collaboratively uh, with uh, Cooley Law School, who has their own Innocence Project. Um, and, and we have a number of cases that right now we're in the process of testing the, the DNA. But when we have a case that comes to us, what we look for is new evidence that would exonerate the person uh, or a situation like we talked about where there is evidence that has been completely debunked we're not looking to retry the same case and say, well, if it was retried, um, is there some sort of due process violation that another jury might come to a different conclusion? We're really looking for new evidence. And that happens when, when you test for DNA that was never tested for in the first place. Mm. Uh, you know, and that, that is most of the cases that we're looking at right now because those cases are so clear and so obvious 
And again, we're not looking for cases where it might be that the person is not guilty. We're looking for cases of actual innocence where we can definitively say we know that that person did not commit that crime, could not have been the perpetrator, uh, so that we can be absolutely assured that the system you know, did not operate correctly, and that person deserves to be freed. Yeah. Uh, this is a unit that's been around now about two years since uh, uh, since you were elected, and this is the first uh, exoneration. I think uh, that that length of time suggests maybe how how hard it is to to identify cases that that seem ripe for this kind of review, to review them, and then to come up with uh, with a conclusion. Well, yes, they are time intensive. There's no question about that. And even the testing for DNA can take a very long time. But to be fair, you know, I I started this office with no additional funding at Mm. all whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And um, you might know the legislature, the Republican majorities, not my biggest fan over there, (laughs) uh, not really interested in, in funding any new initiatives that I put into the office. So it's always a process of me trying to figure out when I create a new division, uh, how am I going to come up with the money to fund it knowing I'm not going to get it from the legislature? Mm -hmm. So uh, this was a process of trying to find grant funding that could be utilized to hire the appropriate staff we had. I started out and I hired uh, Robin Frankel, who was a really well-respected defense attorney, and, uh, and and she started putting the processes in place, but then she had to apply for grants so that we could get investigators to assist her and other attorneys. Uh, and so we now really sort of have a four-person unit, two um, assistant AGs and two investigators who can work full-time on these cases. But even getting that into, into process and also getting our protocols in place that we were going to use and sorting through all the initial applicants, that took some time. And then once we, you know, had all that in place, then we could really start investigating the cases. So I think it took a little bit longer to get this off the ground than it would normally. But, yeah, it is it is definitely a process to investigate these cases. And, again, if we're going to go to a court and say this conviction should be set aside, this man or woman deserves to be exonerated because they are actually innocent, we want to be 100 percent sure of our conclusions. Mm. I'm talking with uh, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Uh, We're talking about the first exoneration from the Conviction Integrity Unit that she started in the AG's office. This is a unit that goes back over old cases from around the state, uh, reexamines them, uh, and determines whether somebody was wrongfully convicted uh, and may be sitting in prison. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. How do you think our criminal justice system should address these kinds of wrongful convictions. Are we doing enough to find these cases? Are we doing enough to fund the research that's necessary when we do find them? Um, uh, Also, what does justice look like for someone who has spent years or decades uh, in prison uh, for something that they didn't do? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there and we'll we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, uh, Dana, I want to ask you about Mr. Poole and what is next for him. What kinds of support does the state have to offer him and what, what should happen 
Uh, that's a long time to spend in prison. It's a you know a big chunk of his life that's gone, and and it's always difficult when you get out of prison uh, to get started anyway. So 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 what's next? Well, let me say this about Mr. Poole. Everyone who uh, was a family member to him has since died since he's been in prison. So he's lost his parents and his siblings. And the only people he really has on the outside right now are these folks from uh, the Cooley Law Innocence Project who have worked with him for many, many years to try to win his freedom. Uh, So they all met him when he left the prison and had a big party for him. But, you know, this is going to be a tough road ahead of him. Now, I will say a few things. One, he is eligible. He has to apply and he has to have this granted, but he is eligible under our WICA statute, the wrongful imprisonment statute, for about $50,000 a year for every year that he was wrongfully incarcerated. So that would be something I assume he's going to apply for. Um, But in addition, I really have to give... uh, you know, kudos to uh, Director Heidi Washington of the Michigan Department of Corrections and the staff at MDOC for working tirelessly. As soon as we brought this to their attention and that we were going to be making this motion, they worked really hard to make sure that he had some basic things that he would need, um, you know, to get him a state ID, to sign him up for Medicaid. They actually got him some uh, medical equipment that he needed right away, like a CPAP machine and things of that nature, mm. and tried to set him up with temporary housing. So they worked really hard in concert with some groups that uh, that worked to do that with prisoners um, when they're re-entering society. Uh, so they worked to put that together for him. Uh, if he does get this WICA, these WICA funds, obviously he's going to be in a much better position because of that. And that's why it was passed. And it was a bipartisan bill when it was passed several years ago. But, yeah, I mean, for for uh, how do you give him back, you know, over three decades of his life? You, you can't. You can't. All we can do, honestly, is try our hardest moving forward to identify what went wrong in his case. And what went wrong in so many other cases to ensure that it never happens again. And, you know, I will say this. When I ran for office in 2018, I got hit pretty hard on the fact that not only had I been a prosecutor, but I spent many years as a criminal defense attorney, mostly defending indigent defendants, people who could not afford their own attorneys and had to have one appointed by the court. And I don't know if you remember the some $7 million of Dangerous Dana ad, <laughs> but It was really uh, as though somehow I I was disqualified from this position because I had worked as a criminal defense attorney. But I argued to the I argued the contrary of that, that this actually would make me a better prosecutor. And I always said when I left the prosecutor's office in Wayne County and started doing defense work, that if I ever became a prosecutor again, I would be a better prosecutor than I was the first time Mm. because I would recognize the many injustices in the system then you really don't get that perspective when you're on the, at the other table. And so I, I think now moving forward, we are able to recognize a lot of ways in which the system fails people, one of which, of course, we've heard a lot about and has to do with how we fund representation for poor people. Yeah. And when you pay you know, less than minimum wage to an attorney and you don't provide them with the resources they need for expert witnesses and all the rest, how that's very damaging. But also, I think what what I've seen from this case and what I've seen from many other cases is that 
it's not a situation where prosecutors and investigators are, you know, villains in, in some, you know, movie drama and they want to close a case. And so there's political pressure to do that. And that that's how you end up with the wrong person being charged and convicted. It's just really a matter of sometimes prosecutors and investigators get tunnel vision. They're so sure that a particular individual is guilty that they really only accept evidence that corroborates their theory of the case. Mm-hmm. And they tend to unconsciously reject evidence or leads that would point them in a different direction. And I think a lot of us who are tenacious advocates as attorneys um, are guilty of that sometimes, but we have to be really aware of when that's happening. And, and there, you know, is instance after instance of things that we do differently now in the system than we used to do. Um, and I could point to a hundred different examples of things that we know created problems, like the way that we identified people in lineups. And instead of having the officer in charge conduct the lineup where they might give subconscious clues um, or body signals to a witness as to who the person was they should pick in the lineup, now we try to have uh, someone who knows nothing about the case at all Mm. so that they don't know who the potential suspect is in the lineup. So they're not doing that. I mean, there's a hundred different things that we used to do that our practices have changed. Even video recording every, um, you know, confession Mm -hmm. so that we can be sure that the statements that were allegedly made were actually made and we see how they were made so that we know that there's no threat um, or that there's not trickery that's used in a way that would affect the validity or the integrity of that confession. I mean, I can give you hundreds of different examples, but it's being aware of those processes that sometimes lead to wrongful convictions. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We had a caller, Brad, from Shelby Township, who did not stay on the line. Uh, but his comment was he thinks wrongful convictions is mostly political theater for Democrats. Um, you know, Dana, one of the things that I think makes this somewhat difficult for some people is that it suggests a level of uncertainty about uh, about our institutions, about the criminal justice system. It, it, it suggests that there are mistakes. And I think it's easy, as, as Brad is saying, to say, well, um, you know, this is, this is just hay for, for a political fight, uh, you know, by, by liberals, quote unquote, uh, who, just don't like, uh, who just don't like criminal justice. Uh, what, what, would you, what would you say in response to that? Well, I mean, I would say in this case, uh, I had support not just from the Democratic uh, county prosecutor, but also the Republican county sheriff. We were all in agreement about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think many of these exonerations, you know, it's political affiliation or party is really not a part of it. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. We want to only convict and incarcerate people who are actually guilty of the crimes that they are accused of. And moreover, no one of any party wants to see uh, a, you know, a murderer stay out on the street because you've gotten the wrong person. So I, I think there's nothing political about this in any way, shape or form. I work with lots of Republican prosecutors, lots of Republican sheriffs, lots of Republican police departments. And I would say the one thing we all have in common is 
we only want guilty people going to prison for these crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's unfortunate that anybody would, would view it that way, because if we don't concede that there are errors and mistakes in the system, then we will never correct those mistakes. We have to concede that not everything is perfect in our system. And by making that concession and, and that acknowledgement, it allows us to move forward in a way where we're doing better in the future. And I got to tell you, Mr. Poole, I don't know if he's a Republican or a Democrat. I didn't ask him. Mm-hmm. And I don't care. Yeah. Uh, it's about making sure that only the guilty are convicted of, of, of crimes of which they are accused. And there should be nothing political about that. Right, right. Uh, let's quickly go to Elena in Detroit. Uh, Elena, I've got just a little bit left in this conversation, but I wanted to get your question in here. My, my question is, first of all, what will happen to the cases of the prosecutors and law enforcement who have been involved in wrongful convictions? Because there wouldn't be just one person who was um, wrongfully convicted in their cases. And so many other people would be also um, found guilty or given much longer sentences than they should have under these kinds of cases. And I also want to mention that the state has been extremely slow in releasing the juvenile lifers without parole. Long, long after the Miller decision. I was wondering what your thoughts are about that. People are longing to come home. Yeah. Uh, Elena, thanks very much for the call and the really provocative questions. Uh, Dana, go ahead. So in terms of, um, you know, who is held accountable when this uh, occurs, you know, if you see misconduct on the part of, of a prosecutor, and I'm not saying it never happens, um, you know, if that happens, then complaints are filed with the Attorney Grievance Commission, and they can certainly review that. Um, in some of these instances, you see lawsuits that, that are filed on occasion. But I, I would, again, say oftentimes these are just simply mistakes that are made. There are many times where I could say there were, was a mistake made, but it was not something intentionally done by law enforcement. And quite honestly, um, we just didn't have the technology that we have nowadays in terms of forensic science that allow us to identify the guilty from the innocent. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of times these are just honest mistakes that are made. Not always, but, but frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the juvenile lifers, situation. You know, my office was involved in a case that we uh, settled not too long ago. It was the, the, the Hill case. And yeah, the argument was made that, um, you know, juvenile lifers were not giving, given the opportunity, weren't having the reevaluation as to whether or not uh, they should, you know, serve a life without parole sentence versus a term of years. And they weren't having their hearings. I, you know, in the event that the uh, whoever that respective um, prosecutor's office was made the decision uh, that they should still get a life without um, parole term. And so we sought to expedite that. And there was a pretty tight turnaround uh, time period that was put on the county prosecutors who have the vast majority of the cases. Uh, the AG's office only had a, a handful. Mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, we, we saw a, a big change, and I will tell you, like, in certain counties, I mean, let's face it, Oakland County had a lot, a lot of those cases, and Jessica Cooper, when she was the county prosecutor, had decided that the majority of them should still get life without parole. 
Well, that changed when Karen McDonald became the new prosecutor. Right. And so a lot of those cases now, they are resentencing uh, those individuals. Uh, but in the other counties, yes, there have now been decisions made, I believe, in the majority of those cases uh, in accordance with that settlement. Here's the problem. Getting those resentencing hearings and getting those uh, those juvenile life without parole hearings because of COVID. Yeah. We haven't had any trials. So, you know, for the longest time in, in many counties, and these are elaborate cases to put together because they are decades and decades and decades old. And a lot of times what I came to see was the prosecutor would say, well, I'm ready to move forward. But the defense attorney would say, wait, I get one shot at this right. and one shot only. I have to put on my best case. I need expert witnesses. I need to find the witnesses that, that might have been involved in this case in the first place. There are so many aspects to putting together that case that, I mean, it's hard enough to put a case together that's a year old. Can you imagine now a case that's 30 years that's old or 30. 40 years old? Sure. So a lot of times the adjournments were actually sought by defense counsel. And then even when everybody was ready to go, nothing was going because of COVID. Yeah. So, so we're yes, behind. There has been, yeah. Exactly. So yes, there's been a lengthy delay, and there's no doubt about that. All I can say is I think everyone is on the same page now in terms of trying to move forward, but there's a huge backlog of cases that have to be tried. Yeah. Okay. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, always great to catch up with you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations on that first exoneration for the Conviction Integrity Unit. Thanks, Stephen. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Congressman Andy Levin is going to join me to talk about whether the NCAA should be paying student-athletes as employees and whether those employees should be able to unionize. He is one of the sponsors of legislation to do just that, and he joins us in just a minute. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today.